Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to answer you concerning this matter. If it is so, our God, whom we serve, is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Yet even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the appearance of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it was normally heated, and commanded some of the mighty men in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, wearing their robes, tunics, hats, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. But because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace was so extremely hot, a raging flame killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and leapt to his feet. He asked his ministers, didn't we cast three men bound into the middle of the fire? They replied to the king, surely, O king. But he answered, saying, Look, I see four men walking about unbound and unharmed in the middle of the fire, and the fourth has the appearance like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and exclaimed, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the middle of the fire. When the satraps, administrators, governors, and royal ministers had gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their head was singed, nor were their robes scorched, nor was there a smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's edict and to gave up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I hereby decree that any people, nation, or language that says anything slanderous against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and their house made a pile of rubble because there is no other god that is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thank you, Troy. You know, ever so often we look at passages of Scripture that we've read over and over and over and over and over again, and I, I'm sad to say that because of that, they cease to make an impact on us. You know, this story in particular, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I cringe every time I hear uh, because these guys had names that were Hebrew and were God-based, the God of Israel. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, were Babylonian names that were rooted in pagan worship. Um, but I'm sure that everybody has heard at one time or another the story of, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the flaming furnace and so because of that um, it's a challenge to be able to step back and say okay what is the word of God really saying here and specifically what is the word of God saying to me in particular today so I want to pause and ask that the Lord would speak to us 
Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for the amazing way in which you speak to us, Lord, through the stories and, and the narratives and, and other por portions of your word that give us a clear understanding of how you work in general, how you worked in the life of these people, and how you are at work in our life today. So we pray, Lord God, for ears to hear what it is that you want to say to us, Lord, through this portion, and soft hearts to hear and receive what it is that you have in mind for us to embrace and apply. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, the short version here, obviously, is that life is very tenuous. Uh, on one hand, as we saw at the end of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is, is elevated way, 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 way up there. He is uh, in command of the Babylonian Empire right under King Nebuchadnezzar. So obviously he was in a position to help the Israelites who were coming on the second and third wave of exile that the Babylonians were about to unleash. As you remember, Daniel came in the first one, um, the earliest one, but over a period of about 20 years or so, um, there was wave number two, wave number three, and the people of Israel were coming into Babylon after having seen their city torn, the temple destroyed, being hauled into exile over a distance of about 1,200 miles. Not too friendly. You know, they were not um, given B&B on the way to Babylon. Um, and then they come into this foreign pagan culture. Tough stuff. However, they come into a place where their fellow countrymen is in charge of the day-to-day -day affairs of the, of the country, uh, which is what Daniel and his buddies were able to do to some extent. So this is one version on one hand. You know, everything Jewish on one hand, on the other hand. On the other hand, they're under... Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was as predictable as nitroglycerin. You know, you, look, you looked at him funny, and the next thing you see, he blows up in your face. Um, and obviously, the worst part of that is not only the temper, but the fact that if he didn't like the way you looked, um, your head was separated from the rest of your body. He was very indifferent to human life. I mean, we saw last Shabbat, uh, the last two Shabbatot, that um, Nebuchadnezzar was upset, and so he issued a decree that all the wise men, all the astrologers, all the diviners, all the experts in how you figure out the future, all of them were going to be killed, and not just killed. This gets pretty grim, dismembered torn limb from limb and their houses destroyed. 
No problem. He, you know, he doesn't bat an eyelash. He doesn't lose any sleep over that. And so what you see is the fact that this guy has anger issues on steroids. Chapter 2, the previous chapter, we see that <clears throat> what took place, because the wise men were not able to interpret his dream, this made the king so angry and furious. Um, Hebrew combines a couple of words that give you the sense that he's kind of boiling over like a volcano. Uh, then here, this chapter 13, furious with rage or with a fit of rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons the, the three Hebrews. Then in verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. Okay, we get the picture. Uh, when this guy was upset, you looked for a way to duck. And you were living under this tyrant. Um, who was susceptible, and they were susceptible to all kinds of his whims. So the question you want to step back, and I know we have heard the story about uh, about the three Hebrews and, and the flaming furnace, and we almost become desensitized to it. It doesn't really make an impact on us because we're not able to fast forward or, or back in a time machine back to their time and put ourselves in their shoes. Well, again, think about, think about this kind of environment. And the question is, it was one thing for the common Israelites who came. It was something else for people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, um, who had contact, somewhat day-to-day -day contact with this guy. How do you flourish under these conditions? So, in a sense, it's not surprising when we begin this chapter and we see that Nebuchadnezzar decided to set this golden image that was approximately 90 feet. And you probably want to say, okay, uh, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 90 feet? Okay, are we talking about an ego issue here? Because in all likelihood, this image had some resemblance to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, since, to one degree, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was seen as deity, he puts himself out there as a reminder to people of who he is. In case you didn't get it, here is a 90-foot image for you to worship on this plain of Dura, which was... Uh, apparently six miles southeast of Babylon, which is southern I Iraq. So again, why does Nebuchadnezzar have this? Considering the fact that, two things, considering the fact that gold uh, was precious, and even though this probably was not completely gold, maybe clay covered with gold, nonetheless, you're talking about big bucks. Why does he do that? Is it really about the image or is it about Nebuchadnezzar? Obviously, it is about Nebuchadnezzar. Because as you read this chapter, particularly the first 13 verses, 
the phrase that is repeated over and over and over and over again, in fact, eight times, is the phrase of the image that the king set up, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set, the image that I set again and again. The point is not so much about the image. The point is about me. So here you have an egomaniac <clears throat> And here you have the four Hebrews who are committed to worshiping God. And we're not quite sure how long the time had elapsed uh, between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, but you're still talking about individuals who are relatively young. 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, we don't, don't know for sure. And uh, you not only have the problem with Nebuchadnezzar, then you have a problem with the anti-Semitic advisors who are not too thrilled because the Hebrews were raised up above them. Um, and so in, in verse 8, um, we see that, that the advisors are not exactly what you call friends of Israel. Uh, verse 8, at that time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And by the way, the phrase, phrase Jews or the Jews appears about 60 times in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and also in Daniel. That was the term that had come into use, become popular instead of Israelites or Hebrews. So I just wanted to point out that sometimes people look at the New Testament, particularly John, and they see the reference to the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, and they say, ah, John is being anti-Semitic. Well, no, he isn't. He is just following on the customs of what had taken place already in Esther, Nehemiah, Esther, Nehemiah and um, Ezra and Daniel. Astrologers come... And I, I love it. I, you know, uh, you have some pretty serious psychological mind games as you read these verses. Oh, king, live forever. You know, you can just imagine the, the genuflection and, and all the gestures that go with that. You have issues and decrees, O oh, king, that everyone who bears the sound, who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, Lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. Quite the symphony here. <clears throat> Must fall down and worship <clears throat> the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship the image will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. In other words, you put them, these Jews, above us. You know, the Gaul. Um, and here, here is the, 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 um, the zinger. Here is how they push the king's buttons. Who pay no attention to you. You know, this is the king of kings in charge of all Babylon who's to be worshipped. And you have these three Jews who do not worship, who do not agree with that. 
they kind of go on and on here. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of the gold that you have set up. Again, all about the king. So you can imagine that this is ramping up the level of emotional charge here in the courtroom. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there and have seen uh, the king get ready to, to blow a gasket. So again, um, Nebuchadnezzar does blow a gasket. He throws one of his infamous fits. He is outraged that someone would dare to cross him. You know, the chutzpah, the gall, that you would not take what I say seriously. And so Nebuchadnezzar has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brought to him. And he says to them in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3 here, You do not, I see that, or is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, etc., etc., um, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Or um, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And here's the kicker. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? In other words, I am Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, next Next chapter, we will see how God has no problem in speaking his language and saying to him, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, oh, by the way, you're not the king of kings here. Read chapter 4, and, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. And by the way, this is so typical of what happens with humanity. When you look at people who are full of themselves, whether it's in politics, whether it's in religion, uh, whatever, or in business, whatever realm of life they're in, if you see that they're strutting around, follow themselves, guaranteed at some point you will see that they fall flat on their face. Because Scripture says to us that God is opposed to the proud, which means that he actively sets his face. In other words, he... He is engaged in opposing a person who lifts himself up in arrogance. Um, I'm not big on Greek mythology, but the Greeks had a term for that. They called it hubris, which meant that whenever some human being down here got too full of themselves, the gods just reached down and went, whap. Now, our God has a somewhat different approach to life. But we see that Nebuchadnezzar uh, is full of himself. And by the way, that's so there is a lesson to be learned about history as well, that empires that rise and rise and rise and rise and become arrogant and lose perspective, inevitably they start to come down and down and down. Nebuchadnezzar gives 
the three Hebrews another chance. And uh, I don't know how you would face that, how you would approach that kind of a situation. Uh, I would be sorely tempted to say, uh, King, you know, I don't know what came over me. Uh, you know, it was a fit of religious zeal or something. Thank you that you're so gracious to allow me uh, another opportunity uh, to, you know, to kind of get things straight. Um, because here these guys are eyeball to eyeball with this guy who can snap his fingers and they'll be gone. So this is definitely what I would call a white knuckle moment. You know, uh, you either learn to trust God in those white knuckle moments or you don't. And the amazing story, the wonderful story, is even when you blow it in those white knuckle moments, God walks with you and provides another opportunity for you to learn to get it straight again and again and again. And these guys got it. Uh, if you remember in chapter 1, they refused to have the king's cuisine. Um, and God saw to it that they were vindicated. So this is at least uh, opportunity number two. And um, they're facing the king. And, and, and this, this is a tough moment. And by the way, you know, today we, we're seeing fellow believers who are being beheaded and crucified because they refuse to accept Islam. This is reality for, for a lot of folks in the Middle East. But notice in verse 16, there's nothing at all about an attempt to justify themselves to the king. There's absolutely nothing in their reply where they're saying, uh, King, you should live so long. L let us explain to you the wisdom of why we do what we do. There's nothing of that. They simply say to him, we do not need to defend ourselves. That's chutzpah, isn't it? We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to explain ourselves. We are who we are. We and they, in a sense, go on the attack, not on defensive, on the offensive. They say if we are thrown at the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from them. Now, folks, let's be real here for a minute. It's one thing to say that in the privacy of your home, in, in Yeshua Zion, where you're, you're with fellow believers, brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who worship Him, it's something else to be in a white-knuckle situation where the stakes are very high. They make the situation God's problem. The God we serve is able to take care of business. You know, and uh, part of w what I see over and over and over again in my life and the life of, of others is the fact when push comes to shove, 
we act as if we are practical atheists. Let me explain myself before you get ready to stone me here. We act as if God is not on the scene. We act as if we're the ones who are tasked and held responsible in fixing the problem. Um, we all do that. We all do that, folks. By the way, a few weeks ago I mentioned my own personal battle, minor battle with the government and I'm here to tell you that I do have a Medicare card. Yeah, it only took three months and, and uh, two letters, one of which saying you are not a citizen, you're not even a resident. Uh, so we, we, all, we all have the opportunity, folks, to say, okay, Lord, I, in every fiber of our being, I want to take charge. I want to, I want to invest every bit of my useless, nervous energy to try and fix the situation. And have this aha moment with the Almighty to where we realize, okay, God, maybe, just maybe, you're possibly greater than I am. And maybe you know fully what's going on here. And maybe you have effective power to take care of business here. So grudgingly, I give you control because I don't know what else to do. My efforts have clearly come up with a big fat zilch. And at some point, we get it and we do it. And so the next time we have a white-knuckle moment, then we learn to trust God a little quicker and say, okay, God, you are in control. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Marduk, his God, but you are in control. And I have no need to validate myself to prove myself to anybody, I'm just going to trust you. So these guys are not stoned, by the way. They're, they're, not, they're not in la-la land. They're, they realize who Nebuchadnezzar is. They realize that death could be one result here. And they, they say God may see fit to rescue us supernaturally. God has the superior power. Again, remember that the story behind the story here is not that these guys need to be saved out of the burning furnace. Those are the facts on the ground. Though That is really not the main narrative here, folks. The story behind the story here is that the God of Israel has to be validated, has to be honored as the God of all gods. Even in a place like Babylon, a hostile environment where God is not normally proclaimed by anybody, God still has to be validated and proven to be the one who's in control. That, folks, is to me, is the real story here. Nebuchadnezzar is being stupid, um, like we all tend to be, and, and saying, ha, ah, I am who I am. There, it's not possible for any God to rescue you guys. 
And the God of Israel says, oh, yes, there is. And then he proceeds. He will proceed to do what he is able to do. Nebuchadnezzar throws the gauntlet and is picked up because the challenge is unacceptable. By the way, we find that throughout Scripture in situation, you know, again, um, Shabbat school type stories of David and Goliath, David coming against Goliath, and we think about how cool David was. We forget the fact that what really is taking place is a battle for spiritual dominance is the God of the Philistines greater than the God of Israel. That really, really is the story behind the story. But the three Israelites are not willing to take and put God in a box. Now, now this is where we break our teeth. Because our expectation is always, okay, I'm in a mess. God, get me out of here. Because you are who you are, you will get me out of here. That's our assumption, our expectation. And you know what? God sometimes sees fit to leave us in the mess. Now, I know it's highly un-American for God to do that. But if we really put our trust in God in his ultimate control, then we're not going to try and put him in a box and say, God, if you love me, you will do this. But, but simply to say, God, I acknowledge your sovereignty over me. So you can do what you feel, what you know is best in this given situation. Now that, folks, takes chutzpah. That means that we are willing to trust the mercy, the sovereignty, the control of God and say and give God the absolute key and say God you do as you see fit because regardless if it goes this way it goes this way you will see to it that it turns out for the best somehow now again I can't put my arms around that um, in place of the the three Hebrews I, I, I would have said God get me out of here but what they say is incredible. They say, God, if, but if, but if our God sees fit to see to it that we perish, then that's okay. I, I don't imagine very many of us folks are that radical. By the way, in traditional Judaism, this is called Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name, which means that even in, in difficult, impossible situations, people are willing to, first and foremost, give honor and glory to who God is. That is, by the way, what, what the faithful Jewish people did when they went to the gas chambers. They, they chanted the Shema, they chanted Anima Amin, Bebiat HaMashiach, I believe in perfect faith in coming of the Messiah. Um, how do you do that? Well, there has to be obviously an, a supernatural element, although obviously it's not mentioned here, 
about the Holy Spirit, but it brings to mind Yeshua's words in Matthew chapter 10. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, it will be given to you what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your God speaking through you. Somehow, I have no doubt that God is empowering these guys to stand amazingly strong in the face of this situation. So, as we've seen, Nebuchadnezzar um, throws another fit. You guys have the chutzpah to tell me that your God will triumph over me? So he gives order to crank up the furnace seven times and, and the soldiers who throw them in get, get uh, fried. And again, I, I, would have, I would have loved to have been a fly, not on the wall, but s somewhere far away where I could see what was going on. Um, Nebuchadnezzar apparently is in, in sight or is able to get information pretty quick. So the soldiers who threw them in were killed. And as we see through the, through the end of this chapter, the three Hebrews are not killed. Now, for us, obviously, this is the miracle. The fact that these guys not only are not killed, but the clothes that they wear are not touched. And by the way, the text goes on to describe in great detail the kind of clothes that they wore. Why? To, to explain to us that they had lots of clothes that could have gotten, uh, could have gotten uh, charred. And furthermore, it says that they didn't even have the scent of the flame. Why? Because in verse 27, they were unharmed. The fire did not have the, the literal Aramaic there. The fire did not have the power over them. Why? Because God was in control. So, what, what matters here? Is it the fact that the Hebrews were saved? Yes, absolutely. God is a gracious God, and, and he, he wanted to save them. And my conviction is that this is God's go-to position that he wants to bless us. Don't always understand things, but this is his go-to position. So, miracle number one, they're saved. <clears throat> but there's a lot more to the story, folks, that we typically ignore. You saw that uh, the portion, verse 25 I see four men untied walking around in the midst of the fire. No harm has come to them. And the appearance of the fourth is like that of a God, literally, Bar Elohim, the Son of God. Now, again, we can speculate, but this is obviously God showing up. 
invisible form like Elaine was mentioning earlier. Why? Because part of the picture here, folks, is that God had to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. That was a major part of the story, the miracle here, because God is always able to speak to us in our language. And our language looks different for different people, but for Nebuchadnezzar, it had to be that strong and that vivid and that obvious. He was not exactly uh, absolutely uh, brilliant when it came to seeing subtle hints. Nebuchadnezzar sees that, and he gets it, at least for now. He, he says to them, servants of the Most High God. Now, park here for a minute with me. The Most High God is, uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, the real realization that the God of the Hebrews is greater than his deities, Marduk and all the other uh, false gods, Greater than him. Most high is one of the terms, one of the names for God in Scripture. El Elyon, God most high. That's a huge statement of acknowledgement of who God is. By the way, that's a term that we often use here at Yeshua Tzion, if you haven't been around us, because that's sanity saver. When you go through crises, of one kind or another, white-knuckle crises or not, what keeps us balanced and ground, grounded and anchored is the realization that God is El Elyon, God he is the Most High. At any given situation, He is in control above all circumstances. Nebuchadnezzar is nice and friendly. Now he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent forth his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. Affirmation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in typical Nebuchadnezzar fashion, he now goes from one ditch to the other ditch. Okay? The God of the Israelites is the God, therefore, uh, I tell everybody to worship him because if you don't worship him, I'm going to see to it that you're sliced and diced, and that your houses will be uh, torn apart. But the main point is he finally gets the fact, for there exists no other God who can deliver in this way. So again, folks, when we are in crisis situations, all we think about is, God, get me out of here. <clears throat> That's the only thing that fills our screen. Why? Because we really don't have big faith. Our faith is, is kind of puny. And we're also not willing to step back and say, okay, God, um, Maybe you have something else here besides me. Maybe you have a plan and strategy, not just for me, but for what needs to take place through me. That maybe you care deeply about other folks. 
And maybe you want to communicate what you're doing in me to the other folks. And at that point, we get what Yeshua said to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his business, and all these things will be added to you. If you know and understand who God is, his power, his love, that when you come to white-knuckle circumstances, you will not freak. Or if you freak, you will not be there forever. And some po- at some point, be able to step back and say, okay, Lord, <sighs> you're, you're somehow, somehow managing things. I don't, don't understand how somehow managing things. <clears throat> and obviously, we don't want to be like Nebuchadnezzar and say... I get it. God is great. Therefore, you believe in him and accept him as I do or else you're going you're gonna to get nuked. This is the uh, turn or burn uh, strategy of communicating the good news. But this is, folks, this is the amazing thing for me is not the saving of the three Hebrews, is the fact that in the midst of a hostile environment, God Almighty, the God of Israel and the nations, intervenes and shows who He is. Brings to mind Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, the Hebrew word there, rada, radad, rada, has the sense of not just ruling in the sense of telling everybody what to do, but subduing your enemies. You're in the midst of the situation, and you're able to exert power that God gives you. Amazing stuff. So as we step back, there are a couple of lessons I, I would like to put out there for us to embrace. First of all, of course, is the Shabbat school lesson of God is able to pull you out of the fire. He is faithful. Even during extreme and adverse circumstances. Extrapolating for that is the fact that God's unstoppable power has to be displayed even to folks who ridicule and who are contemptuous of God. And like the three Hebrews, we don't stand before them and, and posture and, and try to out-talk them and argue, we simply stand on the reality that we know who our God is. And based on that, we do what God has called us to do and without feeling like we need to justify ourselves. And that's a tough one, folks. If we really believe that God is the righteous judge, will we feel the need to justify ourselves. I don't believe so. Because if we truly understand that God is a righteous judge, we will have the confidence in Him 
that in his good time he will bring about the necessary vindication and of course thirdly is the fact that God is not only invested in us but he has a much larger plan And this is the toughie for us. You know, life gets busy, life gets intense. We have difficulties sometimes, health, relationship, work, etc., etc. And all we can see is what's right there in front of us. Me, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time. God, help me. So this passage is a challenge for us to look beyond and say, God, I don't get it. But open my eyes so that I can get it. Because if you could speak to this, to this ignoramus king, then you can certainly speak to me. Let's pray. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. You sent your son to be our kapara, our atonement. You loved us while we are still your enemies. Thank you, Lord, for all the ways in which you get through to us, especially during times, Lord, when we are recalcitrant and not particularly interested in listening. Thank you, Lord, that you can speak to us in our language. Thank you, Lord God, that you have a bigger plan, a bigger panorama, Lord God, that you want us to be exposed to, that you want us to see, that you want us to embrace, because you are indeed El Elyon. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us, that you will cause us to come to terms with who you are, learn to trust you, and learn to see your bigger plans, Lord, as you want to touch the life of others. So, Lord, we ask for that to become written into our DNA, Lord, into our operating system. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.